0: Welcome to the Physio Crew podcast, where we bring you patient stories, lessons, and cutting edge research to help you resolve from pain and recover from your injury. Please enjoy and subscribe, and we can't wait to share everything that's been going on in the clinic and teach you the things that will help you feel better. Hello, and welcome to the first Physio Crew podcast. I'm very, very excited because many of you know I do a lot on video and I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts every single morning, but this will be the first one. So I want to welcome you to everything sports, injury and pain related. So my job is solely to solve your problems and listen to you know, the things that you're facing and help you to recover from pain and injury and hopefully steer you away from all the horrible things online which will (laughs) lead you down a poor path and help you do the right things at the right time so you get the best results. So I want to tell you a little bit today about how it all started. How did Nicole Crew become a physio? Well it all started when I was 16 and I was at a local horse riding yard and I was up there looking after some horses and there was a physiotherapist apparently treating the horses. I now know that they weren't a physio. He was called the back man and I assumed he was a physio. And he was up there and I held nine horses. So we started about sort of seven o'clock and then finished at one. And I thought, hmm, £450 for half a day's work. That's not bad pay. And as a 16 year old, you could imagine me standing there thinking I'm outside. I'm with horses. I love this. This is going to be my job. So I had a little look at how you become a veterinary physio. That was always my intention, was to become a veterinary physio. And you have to do three years as a human physio. At that point, you had to do two years as a human physio. After that, um, in actual practice and then you could go on and do your two years master's to become a veterinary physio. So I went along that process so I went to university I actually went to Plymouth University and did my physiotherapy training and as I was sort of there I was starting to realise that maybe there was something for me within the human world as well you know I was engaging with patients and realizing wow this is really changing people's lives and um, so I started to get a bit of an inkling during the actual course but I was still very determined that I was going to do animals that I couldn't possibly be in a hospital all day long I would need to be outside and sort of in the nature as it were because I love being outdoors and I felt that really I wanted to be with animals but as I came to the end of that sort of three-year degree I then started thinking okay well how can I give back a little bit I was going to be going on to do my postgrad I was one of the first people that was accepted onto the veterinary um, qualification um, postgrad qualification without having the two years first experience I was one of the first years that they did that and so I had this kind of window of kind of three months where before my course started where I kind of had to some time to fill, and I thought, well, what better way than to maybe go out to a third world country and do some physiotherapy and get some hands on skills? So I chose Ghana um, because my um, my Godfather um, was from Ghana, so I thought, okay, well, Ghana sounds really good it 's still kind of Africa and third world, so I thought well, it will be really different than the u k and so I went out to Ghana. I remember my <laughs> I remember turning up at the airport and my dad sort of dropping me off all nervous you know this kind of I must have been what 20 21 at that point and I had actually traveled a lot of um, the world actually when I was 18 I say a lot of the world it was a tiny amount of The world, but I'd kind of done the normal big loop going off to kind of India and Africa. Actually, I didn't do Africa that time. Um, I had already been to Africa before, but I went to sort of India and Thailand and America and I'd learned a lot then. So I had traveled on my own, so I was quite independent, but I still remember kind of having this big backpack and never having worked in a hospital and sort of staring at my dad trying not to cry at the airport as he saw me off. And um, I must have looked very young at that time and naive as well. So I managed to get the flight over, got the other side and we was quite shocked. I mean, I've been to Uganda before, which is really quite third world. Mostly you're on sort of tro-tros, which are these kind of mini buses and and it's quite different to the UK. You know, there isn't sort of formal roads as such. You kind of... um, going I'm I'm pausing there because I just have this memory of this when I was in Uganda of these kids playing in the potholes and we were going over these kind of red, uh, red dirt roads and the kids would kind of jump down into the pothole poke their head up and then drop down as the car would go over them and i just remember thinking this was the most bizarre thing that i had ever seen and none of the parents seemed to mind all the children were laughing and found it hilarious and the drivers just sort of went over the potholes and i guess they just knew that they don't go in the potholes because the kids are hiding i mean i just found that completely bonkers but it seemed to be um, quite normal for um <laughs> for them i'm sure they don't do that anymore but Ghana was, um, was, you know, a little bit more developed than that. It had kind of um, normal roads as such. And I remember getting on this tro-tro and sort of looking for my seatbelt and thinking, oh, OK, there's no seatbelt. And, um, and sort of bundling myself up to Koforadua, which was where the hospital was and so the first night there was actually <clears throat> another student who was going to be staying she was from austria and we were staying in this little house so the houses there are um sort of traditional build so they weren't sort of mud huts or anything it's traditional build but they're quite small and they They have water that comes to the house, but it only runs um, every kind of two weeks. So uh, (laughs) there's this kind of car that comes round, and in the middle of the night, four a.m., and they sort of shout and um, in Tui, which is the local language there, and they sort of say, you know, the water is coming, and then they fill up all of these buckets. So when you go into the house, there's all these kind of big sort of water butts that store all the water, and then that's how you have the water for your showers and then also um, toileting, and. Um, myself and this other volunteer we were staying in this room which we later found out that was the son's room he used to kind of sleep on the um, on the porch every night or occasionally he'd sleep kind of there was a little um, sort of living area as well and it took me probably a week into the stay to realize that that was we were actually in his room and he had given up his room so that we could stay and then he was staying on the couch so um, yeah it was it was quite different to what I'd been used to kind of at home. And um, as we sort of became acquainted with our surroundings, um, we walked to that uh, hospital for the first day and you kind of approach the hospital and it looks fairly nice from the outside. You know, it's sort of painted. Again, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I wasn't sure if I was going to be in a really remote area in the middle of nowhere, but this was really quite... Um, posh to what I'd imagined um, there wasn't any windows they kind of had these bars over the windows and, and I was like well is that to stop animals getting in or what is it um, and then these kind of raggy curtains that if you pulled them across wouldn't really block out any light and then I remember going into the physio department and being quite impressed they had these sort of corner block of stairs they had some gimbals in there a bit of training equipment it looked like a lot of it had been purchased probably from volunteers and um, and I remember being quite impressed. I thought, oh, there's a lot to work with here. And then I went to wash my hands and tried to turn on the tap, and then realised there wasn't any running water. I thought, ah, oh, there are some quite major differences. And um, and as you're kind of walking around the wards, you see this kind of smeared red mop marks where someone 's tried to wash it, but obviously the water isn 't very clean, and also they 're having to um, lug the water around because there isn't running water and and so there were some some big major differences with that. The wards were very, very different, and in um, in this particular hospital, the hospital was kind of associated with death, so people only really went there if they were really, really poorly and You could see that, you know, there were late stage diseases that I would just never have seen in the UK. There was one little boy who had been dragged, you know, if in a hit and run, he had been dragged for three miles, his arm caught in the grill of the car before the person actually decided, actually, this child isn't falling off, I'll just go and detach them and then, you know, leave them at the side of the road. And this little boy, his mum hadn't thought, "Oh my gosh, he's been pulled for three miles. maybe I should take him to hospital." She actually took him home, so he stayed at home until he developed um, a fever and an infection, and then was very, very poorly, so she'd brought him into the hospital and I was seeing him i'm not quite sure how long after, but he didn't have any pain because he'd severed the nerves when he was being dragged. actually, his arm was sort of floppy, but it had fractures and um, nerve damage to that arm so he was kind of smiling they're all very excited to see sort of the young volunteers because they don't see many white people so they would the kids would kind of run after us and call sort of mzungu mzungu which is um then in, in their language white person so the thing that really changed my perception forever the real turning point that made me think no I have to become a physio for humans you know my real calling for it was that first day when I was treating patients properly so w- when people started to know that we were there we would get this sort of line of people that would come and see us and I think the physio there was a perception of course that if people are coming from abroad perhaps they've had different education and um, and and also they they wanted to see if we had any sort of new techniques that we would be able to help and I remember spotting this woman sort of maybe um, halfway back in the queue and she, I actually, she she was actually 60, but she didn't look it. She looked definitely only in her 40s. And she had this gorgeous kind of black hair that was put up in this bandana. And she looked kind of nervous when she was standing there. And um, so a couple of the other volunteers took the first few clients. And, um, and she sort of came forward. And I had an interpreter that was working with me because I didn't speak any twee at the beginning of the trip. So um, the interpreter kind of brought her over. And um, and sat her down, and I said, "Okay, what's the what's the issue?" But I kind of knew what the issue was because I could see as soon as she came over, she had this um, flexor pattern, which is something that can occur after a stroke, where the arm is sort of pulled in closely, the elbow's pulled in closely, and there's kind of um, flexion of the the wrist and the fingers, and um, and further up the arm as well, depending on how bad it is. Now, when she sat down, I have to admit, I was absolutely petrified because I had come straight out of university you know I'd done a few few placements where I may have seen a couple of strokes but I hadn't done that much work with stroke or neuro and I felt really nervous that perhaps I you know wouldn't be able to help her so as the interpreter was kind of explaining she sort of explained that she had had a brain tumor sort of 40 years prior so when she was in her 20s and she had had this brain tumor that was removed, and something had gone wrong in the surgery, and they had um, left her with these symptoms that were very much like a stroke, so she had a hemiplegia, which is that weakness on one side of the body and She said to me through the interpreter, she said, "You know, I want to be able to use my hand, I want to be able to feed myself and I'm looking there, thinking, "Oh my gosh, forty years has passed, and nothing has changed. Am I really going to be able to help this woman and so When I first sort of was looking at her I remember my hands were sort of trembling as I was assessing you know the range of movement of her fingers, of her wrist, of her elbow Um, and then something amazing happened. I was asking her through the interpreter to try and open the hand and I saw this flicker of her fingers and I felt the muscle in her forearm and I felt the flicker and I thought, oh my gosh, the signal is getting through. And I remember very clearly when I was at uni, they were saying, you know, if there is a flicker, there is potential because the brain can reprogram. So as long as the signal is getting down, we can have an influence on that. And I felt that kind of butterfly in my stomach of excitement of, oh, maybe maybe we can make a difference here. So um, the woman, I sent her off, first of all, with just some gentle stretches to do and then to really start doing some kind of desensitization because she had some pain um some desensitization and visualization of moving that hand, um, which we sort of do with motor imagery. And so sent her away and she came back and we did maybe two or three weeks where I really was struggling. You know, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, how am I going to how am I going to figure this out? Because um, I like I say, I didn't have much experience. So I was sort of going online. There was this little Internet cafe. They didn't have Wi-Fi then, but they had this little Internet cafe um, when which I would go to every evening and sort of read up about the literature and what you could do and whether you know they were talking about tone and stretches and strengthening exercises that could could help to be able to for her to use her hand again and about week three she came in and she had this sort of weird smile on her face I say a weird smile because I've never seen anything like it really almost like she was shocked happy but a little bit surprised a little bit shocked and she said look um she didn't actually say look sorry she was talking through an interpreter but she was pointing at it and she was saying the equivalent in tweet which I can't remember what that is now and she was able to open her hand a little bit and you know this was like half a centimeter so if anyone was looking at it they would go well it's only half a centimeter but to myself and to her it was hope it was, oh my gosh, this has been 40 years and she hasn't been able to move her hand and now she can. So over the next kind of two to three months, she would come in every week and, um, and often we would share quite a few tears because she was going through this complete transformation of being able to Start to use this hand, and she was the most motivated patient i 've ever had. <laughs> she would come in and she would listen to everything that I asked her to do. We would do the stretches, we would do the strengthening exercises, and over time each week we would get half centimeter more half centimeter more and then we were starting to see that she was getting the the closing and the opening. She was able to control that movement, so we were getting that fine movement between the fingers and the thumbs um, and then um About a week before I was due to leave, she came in and she was um she was in tears and she and she had this rice that she'd brought in, and she showed me how she was eating, so she was able to eat with her hand so that was a woman that within three months had gone from somebody who had been disabled for 40 years to being able to eat with that hand now that might not seem a lot to you but that was huge for her and it really set sort of my path to think okay right yes I love working with animals but actually treating humans is so so rewarding because you can have that conversation even though for her it was a lot of our communication was through our body language and our our laughter and our tears because we did have that language barrier but it was amazing to yeah to really really see. What was hard to see was the disparity between what was happening over there and what was happening here. I mean, when I was working on the wards there, I remember walking through the first day and there was a lady laid on the floor and her She had had an amputation, and her stump was completely undressed, and it was on the dirty floor. You could see all these smears of this red kind of dirt, and I just thought, oh my god, this is awful. And I said to her, um, again through an interpreter, I was like, why, you know, why is she on the floor? How, why are you on the floor? And um, and her son said that she's too scared because she'll fall out of the bed. Because of course. Things in the UK that we take for granted are, you know, cocksides, which prevent people falling out of the bed. But she was so scared she wanted to be on the floor. And, um, and of course, they couldn't afford dressing there. So that's why she had um, the stump, which could easily have got infected on this dirty floor. And... And that made me quite sad to see the disparity between the life that we live here and then the life that they live there. And I thought, you know, is there other ways that we would be able to help? And that's always been my dream with the physio crew is that we have outreach centres across the world where we can send our... Um, you know, our employees out to go and work out there. A, because it's really, really good for their education. B, because it stops people becoming reliant on um, on gadgets, which it sounds hilarious that I'm saying that because I'm a gadget queen. You'll know I've got hyperbolic and I've got anti-gravity treadmills, but that doesn't mean that we neglect the fundamentals and it doesn't mean that you can't go out to a third world country and then still have a really, really big impact. So I wanted to talk today a little bit about how you, if you are in a situation where you're trying to recover from pain and you're thinking, well, how can I move forward? How can I start my transformation? Would it be possible for me to be able to change even if it's been a really long time? And of course, I use the example of um, somebody who had stroke-like symptoms and it applies to everybody, whether you've had a sports injury, whether you've had life-changing trauma and you've got a spinal cord injury, whether you've got... Um, perhaps knee pain, or perhaps you've got osteoarthritis, or fibromyalgia, or rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, the list goes on. There's, I think, 28 million people in the UK in chronic pain. Like, that is, and chronic pain just means pain over three months. That is a huge percentage of the population. And this was one lady in a poorly resourced country that had her life transformed. But I thought, how many people are in the UK right now? How many people are sat there dealing with pain, like this woman was, 40 years of not being able to use her her hand or her arm. So putting up with disability and pain and not actually knowing that there's a solution to that problem and that physiotherapy may be able to help. Now, of course, physiotherapy doesn't help everybody which is why we do our free discovery course because um, and what that is just for people who don't know it's a 30 minute call completely no obligation just for us to have a conversation to work out you know is this a problem that we can help to treat because we don't want to see anybody that we can't help Um, and also it helps you to kind of get clarity in your plan and understand how to move forward. So, um, so I was thinking about how many people are there who just are putting up with pain, just sort of saying, well, it'll get better on its own, or perhaps <clears throat> I just have to deal with this, or the classic one I hear all the time is, oh, I'm just getting old. Don't put yourself in that bracket. Seek help for it and, and see if, if we can resolve it. So one of the things that I'm planning to do with this podcast is I want to really share other people's stories. I want you to see the people who have recovered um, through our services and so that you can listen to the things that they've done and hopefully learn from them and understand how that sort of relates to you and your pain and your fitness, and also hopefully to give you a little bit of inspiration that you can also recover and um, get back to the things that you love. All right, then, guys, so that sums up the, la- um, the end of the first podcast, not the last podcast, <laughs> the first podcast. Now, I hope it's been all okay for you. I'd love for you to leave a bit of feedback. If you wouldn't mind leaving us a review, that would be fantastic because that will boost us up in the ranks and that will get us um, spread so we can speak to more influential people and I can bring these um, lessons back to you so the podcast really is going to be a mixture I'm going to be bringing stories from patients I'm going to be bringing cutting um, sort of the latest research so cutting ed research and then also explaining what we're doing with sort of our um, specialist equipment, so the high back oxygen, the hydrotherapy, the shockwave the recovery boots, the complex we 've got loads and i 'm learning so much we've started we 've um, started this new sort of four hundred pound for a four week block package and it is just getting the most amazing results. So I can't wait to show you the results that people are getting at the moment from doing that more intensive physio. Because I can say to you, you know, these are the people who are choosing not to have ACL surgery. These are the results. This is the level that they're getting back to. And I hope that will be interesting for you. All right, guys, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Physio Crew Podcast. I hope you have learned lots in this episode and please feel free to share with your loved ones. If you could leave us a five-star review, that would be amazing because it will help us to get this message to more people and help them to transform from this state of being in pain, not knowing what to do and being able to get back to the things that you love. See you in the next episode.